Shalom, everyone. This is Rabbi Elliot Salo Schoenberg, the International Director of Placement for the Rabbinical Assembly. Welcome to Chodesh Tov, a monthly podcast of the International Rabbinical Assembly, the Schechter Rabbinical School in Jerusalem, the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles, Jewish Theological Seminary, and the Conservative Yeshiva, all participants in this podcast. Today, I'd like to acknowledge with profound welcome Professor Judith Hauptman, who's going to present a podcast on her current form of scholarship. She wanted to note two things. It's a work in progress. She would greatly appreciate feedback, other examples, questions that you may have about it. And also to note that if you would like to look at the text that you will be citing, they are found on our website, and you can look at the link to them. Welcome, Professor Hauptman. The last 50 years of research in Talmud produced the theory of a layered text. That the Talmud did not evolve in a linear fashion, with one statement added and then another following it and so on. Rather, there were earlier layers, or networks of texts, and then a later layer was interpolated into the earlier layer, and an even later layer added to that. So, which are these layers? The first, oldest, is Mishnah and associated Tanitic texts, Brightot, some in Tosefta, some not. Memrot of Amoraim, they comment on the Mishnah, on a Brightot, relationship between Mishnah and Brightot. And the last, or latest layer, is what we call the Stama de Gemara, which weaves it all together. It provides the interstitial material that explains the relationship of the earlier teachings to each other. A benefit of the theory of layers and of the late Stama de Gemara is that it leads to a better understanding of what the authors of the individual statements were saying. I want to propose now, today, the existence of one additional strand, or you may call it a subcategory of Amoraic material. And here it is. Sometimes a Mishnah or a Brita is followed by a very brief anecdote which reports how one Amora carried out the recommendation of another Amora Watana. I claim that these are real-life anecdotes, which were edited, shaped nicely for inclusion in the Talmud. The accepted theory is that these anecdotes come to show the Amoraim as pious and exemplary in their behavior. I think otherwise and hope to persuade you that I am right. I'm now going to present three examples, and you've heard they are, you can see them on the link. The first is Brachot 13b. Tanya Sumchus Omer, Kol Hamarich Beachad, Marichin Lo Yamav Ushnotav. Whoever dwells or lingers on the word Echad at the end of the verse Shema Yisrael, his days and his years are lengthened. You lengthen Echad, your years are lengthened. The anecdote associated with that brayta, Rabbi Yirmiya Havayativ Kame de Rabbi Chia Bar Abba Chazie de Hava Marich Tuva. So Rabbi Yirmiya, who's a fourth generation Jerusalem Amora, was sitting before his senior colleague, who saw that Rabbi Yirmiya was taking a long time on saying that word Achad. Amarle, so the senior colleague Rabbi Chia Bar Abba says to Rabbi Yirmiya. Since you've already accepted the kingship of God above and below and in the four directions, no more is necessary. Enough already. 
It seems to me that this anecdote was inserted into the Talmud. It obviously did not have to be there. It was inserted to modify the Memra. Yes, lingering is good. God is one. We need to make that clear. It's certainly a basic principle of Jewish faith. But there is such a thing as taking too long and thus annoying people, what we call Tzibura, or showing off one's piety. So the anecdote comes, I think, to restrict the Brita, and together they form guidelines of Jewish practice. A second example from Shabbat 139b, Devei Rav Papa Shafu Shichra Mi Mana Lamana. This means, okay, first let me say, the Mishnah says that one may not strain wine on Shabbat to remove the lees or the sediment. And the line of Gemara that I just read says that in the home of Rav Papa, they would pour the wine on Shabbat from one bottle into another, thus accomplishing the goal of straining, but without using a strainer. Again, there is law and there is life. Drinking wine on Shabbat is desirable, but so is removing the sediment. So how can one do that, remove the sediment without breaking the law? Creative solution is to pour the wine from jug to jug. So who are the people who adjusted the law in this way? Well, it's not the rabbis, but the household staff, presumably wife and servants. This is their input into the law. Now, we generally tend to think that the way or the main way to modify a law is for later rabbis to say that an earlier law, which seemed to cover all situations, is actually limited to a specific set of situations. When you see the phrase, that's what it's usually doing, limiting, let's say, the Mishnah to only some cases, and then the Amora legislates for other cases. This is a time-honored way of adjusting the law. But that means it is all in the hands of a legislator. Sounds like limited input from elsewhere. But these anecdotes make it clear that there is ongoing dialogue between prescriptive law and descriptive application of the law by non-rabbis. Their voices are heard. Last anecdote from Bavlik Tubot 61a. Amar Rav Yitzchak Bar Hananya, Amar Rav Huna, Kol Mulachot Shahaisha Osalva'ala, Nida Osalva'ala, Chutz Me Mizigata Kos, Bahatsa Arhamita, Baharchatsat Panav Yadavaraglav. Which means, um, according to Rav Huna, all the domestic tasks that a woman performs for her husband, that a wife performs for her husband, Anida, menstruant, also performs those tasks for her husband, with exclusions, and they are mixing and serving him his cup of wine, making his bed, and washing his face, hands, and feet. The Gemara continues, Umezigata Kos, on the topic of serving him wine, probably a nightcap. Shmuel machlefale devitu biyada desmola, abaye manchale afuma dekuva, rava besadya which means that Shmuel's wife would change hands. She would serve him wine in her left hand when she was Nida, rather than as she usually did with her right hand. Abaye's wife would put the cup of wine on the mouth of the cask. Rava's wife would put the cup of wine on a stool. That is, these women 
bent the law to their own desires. As long as they did not hand the cup to him directly in the way in which they were accustomed, they assumed it was all right. Even though the point of not serving wine when Nida was not to arouse the husband sexually, is this pious behavior or is this a way of keeping the letter of the law, which is not serving him wine as usual when in Nida, but violating the spirit, which is serving him wine when Nida, even though she should not be arousing him sexually? I think it is the latter. That is, the anecdotes are not merely reports of how a pious rabbi or household of rabbi carried out the law and he held himself to be an exemplar. Rather, the anecdotes have a goal. Here is how the law needs to be adjusted. The voice of adjustment comes in the simple statements about how rabbis carried out the law. In fact, it is often their households who are carrying out the law. So the anecdotes are saying something deep. It is one thing to formulate the law, it is another to live by it. And those who edited the Talmud are suggesting, by including these anecdotes, that law does not exist in a rarefied realm, but on the ground it must take life circumstances into consideration. Jewish law is thus more democratic than we generally assume it to be, which I think is an uplifting discovery. And we arrived at this conclusion by paying attention to a strand of material that is generally not taken too seriously. I rest my case. I would very much appreciate additional examples of the sort I was describing or other comments and questions. Thank you. Shalom. Thank you very much, Professor Hauptman. This has been Chodesh Tov, a monthly podcast of the International Rabbinical Assembly. This is your host, Rabbi Elliot Salo Schoenberg, wishing you all a Chodesh Tov.